This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, April 11th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Kate Trinko. Today, we're going to talk to legal expert Amy Swear about a pivotal gun case that could have big ramifications and that may now head to the Supreme Court. Plus, we'll talk about a new article encouraging people to not share a cartoonist's work just because he's pro-life. By the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. In testimony on the Hill Wednesday, Attorney General William Barr said he thinks there was spying on the Trump campaign in response to questions from Senator Gene Shaheen, a Democrat of New Hampshire. I think spying on a political campaign is a big deal. It's a big deal. The generation I grew up in, which was the Vietnam War uh, period, you know, people were all concerned about spying on uh, anti-war people and so forth by the government. And there were a lot of rules put in place to make sure that there's an adequate basis before before our law enforcement agencies get involved in poli- you know, political uh, surveillance. I'm not suggesting that uh, those rules were violated, but I think it's important to look at that. And I'm not just I'm not talking about the FBI uh, necessarily, but intelligence agencies more broadly. So you're not you're not suggesting though that spying occurred. I don't, uh, well, uh, I guess you could, I I think there was a spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. Well, let me. The uh, the question is whether it was predicated, adequately predicated. And I'm not suggesting it wasn't adequately predicated, but I'd need to explore that. I think it's my obligation. President Donald Trump announced Wednesday that he does not have any intention to release his tax returns that House Democrats are requesting. He said, quote, I have no obligation to do that while under audit and no lawyer would tell you to release your tax returns while you're under audit. Trump told members of the media at the White House. Due to rules the IRS put in place after President Richard Nixon had underpaid on his taxes, and since Nixon, both presidents and vice presidents have been put under audit during their time in office. I would love to give them, but I'm not going to do it while I'm under audit, Trump said. Senator Bernie Sanders introduced a Medicare for All bill on Wednesday. American people are increasingly clear. They want a health care system that guarantees health care to all Americans as a right. Fourteen other senators have signed on as co-sponsors of the bill. Israel's prime minister was re-elected to serve a fifth term as prime minister of Israel. According to CNN, quote, having all but secured his cherished fifth term, Netanyahu will become Israel's longest serving leader in the summer, overtaking David Ben-Gurion, the country's founder. The votes of diplomats abroad and soldiers are yet to be counted, end quote. I thank the citizens of Israel for their trust, Netanyahu said Tuesday. I will start forming a right-wing government with our natural partners as soon as tonight, end quote. Another migrant caravan from the Honduras is heading to the United States. Fox News reports that nearly a thousand people came to the starting place of the migrant caravan, some of whom had children with them. In March, 53,000 families arrived at the border. Not even a month after the mass shooting on March 15th at two Christchurch mosques in New Zealand that left 50 people dead, New Zealand's parliament has voted 119 to 1 to change its gun laws. 
Once approved by New Zealand's Governor-General, the change would place a ban on military-style semi-automatic weapons. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern told Parliament members that by supporting the legislation, they were, quote, giving a voice to those killed in the Christchurch shooting. The Washington Post is asking a court to dismiss the $250 million lawsuit against it filed by Covington Catholic student Nick Sandman, arguing that the newspaper defamed Sandman. The Post says in the filing, per USA Today, it was neither false nor defamatory, however, for the Post to report the comments of eyewitnesses, including the only participants who were speaking publicly about the matter on the day that videos of the event went viral on the Internet. Next up, we'll talk to Amy Swear about a new gun case. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Remington, a gun manufacturer in North Carolina, is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to hear their case after the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that the manufacturer could be held liable for the deaths at Sandy Hook since the shooter used a Remington gun. We're joined today by Amy Swearer, a senior legal policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Amy, can you unpack this lawsuit for us? Sure. Well, I think the the first thing that's important to keep in mind here um, is that none of this ruling had to do with the merits of the case. Right? So the, the Connecticut Supreme Court did not say that you know, Remington was liable for anything, that they did anything wrong. What this really boils down to uh, is a question of whether the plaintiffs, who are all families of, of individuals who were killed at Sandy Hook, whether those plaintiffs can even sue Remington to begin with. Um, so in 2005, Congress passed a, a statute called the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And basically what that statute did was say that there is a, a blanket ban on the ability of private individuals to sue uh, gun manufacturers or gun dealers for uh, times when other individuals unlawfully use those guns. Um, now, there are several exceptions to that, uh, and, and we'll get into that in a second, but, but basically there's this, this blanket ban on these types of lawsuits. So the, the Sandy Hook uh, plaintiffs brought, tried to bring this suit in, uh, in state court in Connecticut, and of course right away Remington said, well, you can't do this. You know, Congress has said these types of lawsuits are prohibited. And so uh, going forward, this entire string of cases uh, has been about whether this type of lawsuit is the type of lawsuit that Congress said can't be brought in the first place. Um, So so I think that's important to keep in mind that that this has not been in any way, shape or form about whether Remington is liable. It's about whether we can even get to that next step. So do you think the Supreme Court will agree to hear this case? Uh, There's a good chance that it will. and, and part of that has to do with the way that this Connecticut state court ruling kind of undermines federal law. Um, so it, it was very clear when Congress passed this law in 2005 uh, that it intended to stop uh, what it called predatory, you know, politically motivated lawsuits um, because the, the gun industry is a lawful industry. And, uh, you know, as, as a policy matter, Congress wanted to to stop these types of lawsuits against a lawful business uh, as a means of, you know, politically hitting them and making them defend themselves hundreds, thousands of times in court 
because it, it just stymies the entire business. Um, and so because of how this ruling undermines literally the, the entire premise of the bill, uh, there is a good chance that the Supreme Court will take it on uh, because it's it's a matter of, you know, a, a state essentially saying, well, we, we are going to interpret exemptions in this statute to, to undermine the entire thing. Um, and so you have a bit of federalism there. Um, you have what I would consider a blatant disregard of, of the meaning of the statute. Um, the Supreme Court hasn't taken a case about this statute before, uh, but uh, it, it seems like this would be a good time for it to do so. You mentioned that the Supreme Court hasn't taken cases like this before, but are there any indications or past writings or just things that you have seen that might indicate how the Supreme Court may choose to handle this case if they do take it up? Well, I think the the biggest thing is actually, you know, now that we have a number of justices who care about uh, originalism and care about, you know, the, the meaning of the law at the time it was passed continues to be the meaning of the law. You know, we can't, uh, as judges, just decide, well, well, this is bad public policy, so we're going to change the meaning of the law judicially. Um, and because that's what happened here, I, I think there's a good chance um, that that you will see you know, at least four or five judges who will look at the legislative history, who will look at um, the clear congressional intent, um, who, who will look at even just the way that the exemption is laid out in the statute um, to say that this type of lawsuit is clearly, unequivocally, the type of lawsuit that Congress was trying to prevent, um, because it is essentially blaming the gun industry for the unlawful uh, actions, the unlawful criminal actions of a third person, um, where the gun industry in and of itself did did nothing wrong here. Um, so I, I, I think that is I think clearly the indication of of where the court might go with this. And what are the possible ramifications in this case for? gun businesses, but also would gun owners potentially be affected or would they not be? Uh, well, so the the big problem with this case is that it essentially gives a roadmap for other states such as New York and California who are uh, very much not friendly toward the gun industry um, to, to enact similar types of statutes and, and use those state statutes to undermine the federal statute. Um, and so what you could see is is this law being undermined uh, in just the way it's interpreted in the states to an extent that the floodgates of litigation kind of open again um, so that all it takes is, you know, someone to file suit in Connecticut or another anti-gun state that has interpreted the law this way. Um, and all of a sudden, all of the protections that Congress enacted in 2005 to prevent these types of lawsuits no longer matter. And so they're getting sued left and right. Um, for, again, these, these same types of politically motivated, um, vindictive, anti-gun type lawsuits. Are there any other industries that are held responsible in crimes? For example, have car companies ever been responsible for accidents caused by drivers? So my understanding is that uh, so there's there's no similar type of law uh, like the lawful protection of, of commerce and arms law for uh, the, the vehicle industry. Um, but generally speaking, the, the way that these sorts of, of liabilities work um, is that they, they never get to it on the merits. So they're allowed to bring those suits. Uh, but ultimately speaking, you know, you, like, you have to be able to show that the car manufacturer did something wrong and, and that by doing something wrong, it caused that injury. Um, so you can't just say, 
uh, for example, with a car manufacturer, well, you created a car that could be used to you know, commit a, a drunk driving incident, uh, and so therefore you're liable. Uh, you know, as a general rule, manufacturers of lawful products, regardless of what it is, whether it's firearms, whether it's cars, whether it's baseball bats, um, you know, unless there is something more, you know, where, where they were specifically uh, marketing it, you know, with an advertisement, like, yeah, we want you to drunk drive, we want you to drink and drive in this car. Um, they're not held liable, just just as a general matter of that's not how civil liability works. Um, but what Congress actually did here is enact a law to say, this is so politically motivated uh, and this is so clearly trying to stymie a lawful industry that we're not going to allow you to, to bring those lawsuits anymore because the gun industry was being targeted in a way that other industries were not. So you brought up advertising and unlike you, I am not a legal scholar, but my understanding of this case is it hinges not on so much that Remington used the gun uh, or the Remington gun was used in Sandy Hook, but advertising Remington put out, um, I believe, describing the gun as a combat weapon or something to that effect, uh, incited the Sandy Hook shooter is the idea. And what, yeah, is there any legal precedent for looking at advertising this way or how does that shake out? Right. So essentially one of the exceptions to this federal law, if you as a gun manufacturer break a state or federal law regarding sales or advertising, uh, you can be held liable for that. Um, and so kind of as you Im- implied there, the plaintiffs are, are saying Remington violated a Connecticut state statute regarding uh, marketing uh, and that uh, because they violated that statute, uh, we can, you know, we're saying that's the cause of injury and so we can bring suit. The, the problem is this statute uh, in Connecticut is so vague, you don't even have to necessarily break an existing law to violate the statute. You just have to have a commissioner find that you violated a public policy or something you did was immoral with the advertising. Um, and, and so essentially what they're arguing is by advertising the gun as, you know, in a lawful way with people using it lawfully, um, you know, like just holding Remington rifles, that that this somehow induced people to believe uh, that they wanted you to use this to attack civilians. Um, so it's kind of this convoluted reasoning where they're trying to argue that they violated this marketing statute um, because advertising the guns just in a normal way was against public policy and and was bad and immoral. Um, So again, it's this weird scenario where it is the exact opposite of what Congress intended from these exemptions. Um, So uh, for example, if Remington were to have advertised the gun as, you know, you can fire 500,000 rounds before it ever malfunctions, we guarantee it, and lo and behold, like it, it just never fires at all. Like you, you could sue them for you know the, the liability of, of false advertising, essentially. Um, or if, for example, a gun store did not keep adequate records or sold to felons knowingly, you know that absolutely violates a federal law. And if that felon then went on to commit a crime, yes, we all agree the gun store should be held liable because the gun store did something objectively wrong, you know, objectively against the law. Um, but the way that Connecticut has interpreted this statute kind of takes all of that objective reality away and essentially gives the state the the power to say, well, we didn't like the way you, it was lawful. What you did was not against the law, but we didn't like the way you advertised this. Um, so now you can be held liable for really anything that goes wrong with your guns. 
Last question. So, you know, obviously this brings up Sandy Hook, which it's incredible that it's now been, I guess, seven years. Um, But we're still dealing with school shootings and a lack of safety at schools. And obviously this is a very complicated topic, but big picture, what can we do in school safety? So there's a a number of things that that we can do uh, from from a standpoint of school safety. Um, And first, you know, let me be clear. I cannot imagine what these family members from Sandy Hook must be going through. Uh, I mean, they have suffered incredibly, um, and it's natural to you know look for justice, uh, especially when the individual who actually committed the crimes uh, is not uh, available, you know, to to have justice administered to. Um, but I, I think in reality, what we have to look at here is that for ten minutes, that individual was able to have free reign to harm those students. Uh, it was 10 minutes before the first 911 call um, to when police entered that building. Um, and, and at that point, it, frankly, it doesn't matter what type of, of weapon you have. I, I mean, when evil is unopposed for that long, it's problematic. Um, and so one of the first things we have to look at doing is ensuring that we are protecting our, our nation's students in the same way that we protect our nation's celebrities. Um, you know, that that can look that can look different depending on the context of the school. Um, it might include you know, having armed security on campus. Um, it, it might include other measures, um, but that is definitely one aspect of it. Um, and I think the other aspect is, is looking at mental health um, and, and looking at these warning signs. It is very, very rare that we have these types of incidents um, where people were just shocked and had no idea uh, that, that this person was capable of, of you know, c- committing violent acts because most of the time you have individuals who – um, you know, for example, in Parkland, we're going on YouTube and posting, I'm going to be a school shooter, um, you know, where, where there are so many warning signs and being able to distinguish those warning signs and to intervene uh, before deadly situations happen um, is also very critical. Uh, and so I think when you combine those two things together, um, that is is definitely where we have to start looking uh, at school safety and not blaming a lawful industry for the ways in which Um, you know, that their lawful products are misused. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Nylon Magazine doesn't want you to have anything to do with pro-lifers. The outlet wrote this week, quote, Cartoonist Nathan Pyle, whose strange planet alien drawings you've definitely seen everywhere, was discovered to be anti-abortion today, which serves as a valuable reminder that you should know about the person whose content you're sharing. And finding out about Pyle's problematic views serves as a needed warning to make sure the content that you're sharing was created by someone who views you as deserving of autonomy over your own body. So if I'm understanding this magazine correctly, you shouldn't share this guy's cartoons anymore because he's pro-life. So, Rachel, what do you think? I just think this is ridiculous and also very sad. I see 
people on Instagram, influencers, as well as celebrities come out and they want to plug different products or different uh, movements that they're a part of. For example, I really am a fan of Eliza Schlesinger. She's a comedian. Uh, she has a show on Netflix called Older Millennial, and she's hilarious. And I really enjoy following her, but she's you know, constantly plugging Let's Save the Turtles, Let's you know, not use plastic straws, on and on and on. And here is this um, guy here, Nathan Pyle, who feels convicted about being pro-life and wants to share his convictions with followers. And this is a personal view he has. And I just think it's it's sad. We live in a free country. This is the United States of America. It's not you know China or some other country where our speech is so inhibited. And he should be more than able to come out on this and to just talk to his followers about what he thinks about the life issue. And guess what? If they don't like it, they don't have to follow him. You know, it's interesting. So I at first agreed with you, and then I was thinking about this some more, and I wasn't sure how I felt because recently I watched uh, this TV show on Hulu called Shrill, which is about an overweight woman navigating her weird Portland life. I don't really know how to describe it. And... uh, in the very first episode, the show makes very clear that it is a pro-abortion show. And I still watched it, but I actually caught myself thinking, like, I assume, and I, I still assume this, that most people who identify as pro-choice do not believe it's a baby, are acting out of good faith, they're ignorant of the science. Okay. But I was thinking, would I, I don't know, like, would I be comfortable watching a TV show by someone who supported Nazis? No. And I don't know if maybe we've come to a weird point of, I don't know, more extremism or, you know, we've definitely seen the abortion debate heat up. And, you know, maybe this is a chance to say, yeah, we do think it's a baby. And if you're this opposed to it, I mean, there kind of isn't a middle ground. Mm -hmm. There definitely isn't a middle ground. I think now is the time to be having this discussion. And I, I think of what Arthur Brooks was saying here at the Heritage Foundation a few weeks ago is we we become so polarized. And if we do have differing opinions, I think we should be able to talk about them. And I think from what I've read of what he said, he is coming out, Nathan Pyle, in good faith. And I mean, if people are upset about it, this is a time to have a conversation about this issue and to learn from each other because there are things we can learn from people who are pro-abortion and obviously there are things that they can appreciate about pro-life people. So I just think ultimately it's unfair for this magazine to come out so strongly and say to, you know, the magazine's followers and readers, hey, you should boycott this person because he doesn't share our views. Right. But I think it does show, you know, the left is not playing around with abortion these days. Like we've, we've come a long way from safe, legal and rare. It's now something to be celebrated. And if you're not on board and, you know, this is sort of similar to, um, you know, we've seen a couple of cities, airports recently say they won't let Chick-fil-A in. Um, you know, that's ostensibly over marriage and um, LGBT issues, but it's sort of the same thing. I mean, you know, you talk about dialogue, but it doesn't seem like a lot of them are interested in having dialogue. And that's why we need to be having it. You're exactly right. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce radio studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. Thanks to listener LMQ2345 who wrote us on iTunes, quote, The Daily Signal podcast is one of those not to be missed podcasts. I hear things discussed here that I will never find in the mainstream media. We'll see you again tomorrow. 
You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.